Hi, I'm Johnny Pollard and welcome to season three of the One Giant Mind podcast. This is episode one, which is recorded at the One Giant Mind headquarters in our studio, Ritam Pacific in Mullumbimby, Byron Bay, New South Wales, Australia, where as usual, we gather a wonderful group of dedicated meditators that are really keen to probe more deeply into their practice and to the experiences that arise out of their practice so that we can further progress our understanding of what's going on and become more embodied in everything we wish to be. I'm really excited about what's come out in this season and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. This is season three of the One Giant Mind podcast, I believe. And just for anyone that maybe doesn't know the, the backstory of One Giant Mind, um, how maybe how it was created or go back to before it was created, what was your intention with it and how has it evolved over the years to be, to be where it is now and where is it now and where's it going? The original intention for One Giant Mind was to further the research around the social and environmental impacts of mass meditation. In the 90s, I believe, the TM organization, Transcendental Meditation Organization, conducted some pretty compelling studies where they amalgamated about up to 4,000 meditators in a, in a hangar in an airport in Washington, D.C., at the height of the crime season in D.C., and uh, with the intention of observing whether the impact of 4,000 people meditating daily and then over periods of time would or could actually have an impact on society. And so the, as far as I know, the, the study was conducted over four weeks and they slowly ramped up the participants in that study. And what they observed uh, was pretty much what they predicted. They had a model. They, as far as I know, they had some independent researchers from different institutions observing and overseeing the, the, the research model and the, 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 the process by which they're evaluating the impact. It was very robust. And what they observed was about a 23% reduction in crime rate. The police commissioner went on record, apparently, um, saying if it's, re- if it's reduced by 1%, I'll go on national television and encourage everybody to meditate. Mm. Anyway, he went on, apparently he went on national television after the, the study and talked about it and encouraged everybody to meditate. Um, he was extremely skeptical, as anybody would be, you know. How can 4,000 people in, a, in an isolated area affect the crime rate, which is to say affect the, the motivation of individuals considering breaking the law in a particular way? Extraordinary, And there were a whole bunch of other things that they noticed reduce accidents, house fires, all kinds of calamities, disorder. Mm-hmm. There was a, an elevation in social and environmental coherence, as they describe. And this whole, this whole experiment is based on this very simple notion that consciousness is primary to the experience of reality both internally, but also externally. And this is what makes this experiment uh, not only fascinating, but very controversial. Uh, Because the current scientific paradigm stipulates that 
Consciousness is an epiphenomenon. It's something that happens as a secondary effect as a result of neurons firing in the brain. It's a mystery. We don't know how it, how it happens and, you know, it's just there. And so we kind of try to piece together the meaning of life based on the fact that we're kind of an accident, which is what the, the current scientific model suggests. The uh, more ancient perspective is that the physical reality is an emergent phenomenon out of a subtler um, underlying reality, which is primarily characterized as awakeness, self-awareness. When we tr try to understand that, it's, it's very abstract, very difficult for the kind of linear mind, linguistically structured mind, to conceive of a reality that is made up of self-awareness. What does that even mean? However, <clears throat> when one meditates regularly, one gains access to an experience deep within the, the subtler, quieter dimensions of the mind where that statement makes absolute sense, total sense. What one experiences in that transcendental state is a knowingness of reality that is beyond pretense or conception, an isness of this moment that reveals the truth of our existence. It becomes apparent, it's self-evident just through the direct experience of it. And inherent in that self-awareness is intelligence, is an instinctive response to life that ensures that instinct, that intuitive response to life ensures that we participate with our environment in harmony, that we take into consideration. It's not even taken into consideration. It's inherent within it is an awareness of what it's up to. And what it's up to is seeking to serve itself. The environment is always seeking to serve itself because ultimately it recognizes itself as one whole web of life, one system expressed in a multitude of ways that serve many different functions that, that makes this reality so interesting, fascinating and beautiful and rich. Uh, however, underlined, underlined by a, um, a universal intelligence, a shared intelligence that is essentially you know, what brings it all together. And so the experiment was based on this idea that if we could all collectively allow our awareness to move more deeply into this shared, unified state of consciousness, where the direct experience of the knowingness of the oneness of everything uh, is stimulated, the hypothesis was that if a significant number, and it was 0.1%, they claimed in their model, collectively had this experience regularly, it would generate an effect within the field of consciousness in which we all share. So based on this model, we all participate in a consciousness experience that is underlied by a field of consciousness that we all share in as if we are all in an ocean together. You don't say my ocean and your ocean. If we're in the ocean, it's the ocean, right? Mm. So in this model, what it suggests is that we're sharing in a ocean, if you like, of consciousness. 
and that when a significant number of individuals are stimulating attention, individual attention, on that shared ocean, it causes an effect, uh, a broadcasting of an effect that stimulates the same experience in people that aren't actually meditating themselves. So one could potentially have a similar experience, consciousness experience, while pouring milk on their cereal, driving to work, reading the newspaper on the way to work on a train. Planning to rob a bank. Planning to rob a bank. And changing their mind. Exactly. And, and the, the, um, the field stimulates a coherent experience that provides them with an alternative perspective on what is motivating them. It was a pretty far-fetched idea, but it, it had deep roots in a in a ancient lineage of 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 insights about the nature of reality, and it was just so wonderful that they actually took the time to to experiment and and see the impact, and the the effect was not surprising to them at all, but extremely surprising to many others, and so. Uh, me and a, a bunch of other really wonderful meditation teachers thought that you know it was, it was kind of crazy that this research hadn't been continued, and so we're like, well, why don't we why don't we create a, an organization, a movement, and and try and create mass meditations all around the world, and bring in researchers and spiritual leaders that have the influence over tens of thousands, in some cases millions of meditators be an easy way to just get every everyone meditating together and even praying we went to you know we went to religious leaders and asked if they would participate in prayer and on the on the journey we we engaged a, a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of support um we traveled to russia and a whole bunch of other places to meet with scientists to see whether they bring their technology uh, their means of measuring you know the environmental conditions of, of how consciousness affects the environment. And then I met the Dalai Lama and had, a, had a, a wonderful meeting with him about the whole thing. And surprisingly, he talked me out of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> After about a year and a half of really hard work, his presence commands that you really listen. Uh, you, you just like everything that comes out of his mouth and the way that he looks at you and the quality of attention that he gives you. And at no point was I in conflict, oddly, after he said, I don't think this is a good idea. I was just like, oh, you're about to tell me something. I don't know. <laughs> and what he, what he shared in not so many words is that there's a massive tear in the scientific world. And there are two paradigms. Primarily, one is that the world is material and uh, human consciousness is an epiphenomenon and that uh, there is no real underlying organized intelligence that we could um, be in relationship with to further deepen our, our alignment with nature and live more harmoniously within nature and have the nature of reality revealed more deeply to us. It's kind of like you know, your brain state is what you've been born with and you kind of just got to deal with it. Mm. And uh, that's the extent of it. The other paradigm is that consciousness 
self-awareness, awareness of reality, is actually primary. It underlines the, the physical experience of being alive. And that reality exists beyond the physical plane, and that life exists and continues beyond the physical plane, and that this life is one expression of a myriad of dimensions that we as humans can experience, both in a body, alive, and when we drop our body, when we, we pass over, as they say. And that there are layers and layers that take us ever deeper to the source of what has given rise to this, this thing we call life. And that this thing is a benevolent intelligence and is eminently relatable. We can be in relationship with it. And furthermore, as we cultivate that relationship, we merge with it through the realization that we are essentially it. What it reveals to us is that we are the whole thing. That's, that's your perspective on it? Would that be further than the limits of the scientific perspective at the, at the moment? My perspective? Yeah, like you said that there was two paradigms. There yes, was, correct. There they're, was, they're, the, they're the two paradigms that are in conflict. Do you reckon science goes that deep into, that, into the understanding of... The, yes. Yeah, right? Yeah, quantum physics, uh, you know, there are some quantum physicists that are... I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling that they're actually coming up with the understanding of reality without actually practicing something like meditation you know, through their um, probing intellectually from the gross material world into the spiritual dimensions. Mm. They, are, they are cognizing the layers of things in, in such elegant mathematical ways uh, that correlate directly uh, with what's been said for thousands and thousands of years by individuals that wouldn't consider themselves necessarily to be materialistic scientists, mm. but scientists of consciousness they expound a, a picture of reality that is beautifully merging with the with the current scientific paradigm. So yeah, but it's a it's a very dangerous and risky um, place for a scientist to be in this day and age. the The materialistic worldview is dominant, and it is as dictatorial and draconian as any religion has been. Uh, in many respects, and if if somebody, um, and not all facets of it, it's complex. You know, it's it's all on a spectrum, right? There are some that are absolutely opposed to any idea that consciousness is somehow primary to reality, mm-hmm. and then it sort of you know splays into a more open perspective. But at the at the extreme end, like anything on planet Earth, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty fierce, mm-hmm. and. Uh, is hell-bent on destroying anyone's careers and reputations that comes from a reputable institution. You know, you've got professors that are coming from some of the biggest universities in the world that are stepping out and saying, actually, this is what we're discovering, this is what what we understand to be reality to be, and just getting slammed, losing their jobs, all kinds of things. So it's very, very fierce. It's very divisive. And... Anyway, back to the Dalai Lama. Um, he was holding my hand, staring me and looking me in my eyes. He goes, you're listening? I said, yes. 
he said, don't, don't take something so beautiful and put it on the, um, the chopping block because it's going to get sliced and diced. It's going to, it's going to get decapitated. This thing is going to, you know, it has the potential to, to really be something extraordinary, bringing people together, meditating in the name of love and not science. And that was his message. Mm -hmm. Make it in the name of love. Don't make it in the name of science. <clears throat> Human beings don't need more science. They need more love. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the essence of it. And it just, there was a, a, a faint tinge of disappointment <laughs> that I had to ring everybody and go, okay, change your plan. <laughs> um, but what it did is it hit a reset, reset button in me as well. I'm like, well, if it's about love, then I just, it, it doesn't need to be so big. And we, we as an organization pivoted, we, we decided that it was just more about teaching people to meditate. So we created an app. Mm -hmm. uh, we're one of the first meditation apps to, to market in the world. There was like maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we just put our attention on that and doing, doing you know, events in Australia and the US. And that was primarily to promote the app more so than to kind of measure the impact. And we did a few studies with a couple of research institutions because they were just really excited and keen to do it. And um, there were some interesting findings. But at the end of the day, it, 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 just, it, it just couldn't compare. Data couldn't compare to the subjective experiences that people were having collect, meditating together. Mm. You know, such deeply moving experiences, sharing, you know, a meditation with 5,000 people. And, and coming out and going, well, I'm, I'm going to commit to meditating for the rest of my life based on this experience. Mm -hmm. And I've got, you know, teachers that, uh, that I've trained that became teachers because of that, that experience that they had at one of the events. Mm -hmm. So we've continued with the spirit of experimentation, exploration, and we've done all kinds of events all around the world. Uh, we've had a you know a successful app that trains people in a technique. Uh, we've got our meditation teacher training academy where we're training teachers, which is probably the the central pillar of our organization now. What what we're doing because we realize that at the end of the day, it's people that have impact on people. The greatest thing that you know can cause an impact in the world is in people that are embodied. And what it, what our training does is. It trains passionate meditators to become embodied leaders in their communities and and bring great great power to the the potency of meditation the practice of meditation and being able to share it with lots of people and so that's that's where we're seeing we're having our greatest impact and so that's where we're putting most of our attention and you know obviously the podcast this is a really great format to talk about the experience of the unfoldment of our awareness as a result of practicing meditation, which is how I char characterize this, this podcast. It's a, an opportunity for us to further explore what is being revealed to us when we prospectively choose with intent to cause the unfoldment of our, our consciousness, as opposed to allowing it to randomly happen haphazardly, reactively to life where we apply practice, meditation, 
and reflection and all the other wonderful practices that we can employ mm. to more elegantly unfold the experience of ourselves. And so in this podcast, what we do is explore those themes uh, in a really pragmatic light so that, you know, everything that's shared isn't immediately applicable in some way to anybody. Mm-hmm. So that's a version of the story, <laughs> you know. That I'm sure I've missed chapters and interesting things, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's where we're gets at. up to speed. Yeah. Thank you for taking some time to listen to the One Giant Mind podcast, and I hope you're getting a lot out of it. If you're somebody that hasn't yet got a regular meditation practice, One Giant Mind offers a couple of ways in which you can make that happen right now. You can go to onegiantmind.com. And have a look at our teacher directory. We've got hundreds of teachers around the world teaching the One Giant Mind Being technique, both in person and online. And if for whatever reason you're unable to get to one of those courses, you could download our free Learn to Meditate app. It's called One Giant Mind. It's got a 12-step course that'll get you started. And if you're already a regular meditator and feel deeply called to bring this beautiful practice into the world, We strongly encourage you to check out our One Giant Mind Teacher Training Academy. We train passionate meditators to become powerful leaders in their community, equipped with tools to empower others to know themselves very intimately. We teach a powerful process of how to run a meditation course and facilitate the building and growing of a community. And we would love to welcome you into our global family of teachers. A special thanks to our show producer, Daniel Tucker, a.k.a. Spiritual Tradie, our music composer, the one and only Ali Liberman, and all of the One Giant Mind team.